This is the Mile High Five podcast with Carl Jensen and Doug Cunnington. We have authentic conversations about the journey to Phi, health, happiness, and some very odd tangents. We interview Phi experts, side hustlers, people on their way to Phi, and those who have reached the other side. Join us every week, and if you want the show notes and links and all that other stuff, head over to milehighfi.com. Hello, world. Welcome to the Mile High Five podcast. I am your host, Carl Jensen, with my co-host. I'm Doug Cunnington. Doug, it's been a while since we, we recorded. I was out of town, you were out of town, I was sick, and now here we are back again. This is by far the longest we've gone, maybe three weeks? Something like that. It has been a while, and we even had to call in some reinforcements to uh, sit in for you because we, uh, we actually ran out of episodes. Wow, that's never happened. Uh, but in the meantime, I got a virus, you got a guitar, and we're back at it. Yeah, are you feeling better now? Um, 98%, maybe. No, I'll walk that back, 92.5%. I hope I don't get you sick. The nurse on the 1-800 line said I'm not contagious. And for your sake, I hope that is true. <laughs> I hope so, too, because I've been doing fine. I haven't been sick in a while. So, yeah, I mean, did it throw you off? from your fitness stuff and the diet or did you lose weight and it actually helped out somehow? You know, I haven't thought of it, but it did two things. I'm at an all-time new uh, low weight for the past two years down to 157, which is the lowest I've been since before COVID started. But I also felt pretty lethargic and crappy, so my weight training dropped off a cliff. Gotcha. Yeah, and I uh, I think you're you're under my weight now. Um, I'm about 160, 159, 160. And um, my weight training fell off a little bit too, either with travel and just like, I think my energy level seems to waver over the month or something. I'm not, actually, I haven't tracked it or anything, but some days I'm just like, ah, uh, I can do some workout, but I can't lift heavy stuff. So it's a... Uh, it's a weaker workout. It could actually correlate to alcohol consumption, rest, um, other just other factors unrelated to you know anything else, just being a little tired or something. But yeah, travel. You know, you don't have your normal workout stuff, your normal routine, which I'm big on routine. So yep, yeah. So today's a mailbag episode, and thanks everyone for sending in questions. There are actually a couple that we won't be able to get to today. They're a little bit more involved, so we'll hold off on those. But we do want to encourage everyone to send in their questions. You could email us. You can ask on YouTube comments. Um, I think there's probably other mechanisms, but those are going to be the easiest one, easiest ways for us to get them. So if you do have questions in the future, just send them in. And we'll hit, uh, this is Ad Dower on YouTube. So I'll ask this one here. So what about buying and holding blue chip stocks like Amazon, Tesla, Google versus index fund investing? So Carl, you, you have your foot in both camps. Um, and if you could explain why that's the case and maybe we could back into the answer here. Yeah, I did not know what an index fund was until sometime around 2013. I'd started the blog and then I stumbled across JL Collins NH, who's been on our, our show a couple times. We'll put a link in the show notes. 
and he had this big, his whole blog is about why index investing is the way to go. So I read that. And I'm like, oh my God, look at that. That is what I should do from here on out. But before that, I bought stocks. Uh, I was always a nerd, always obsessed with talks, with tech. <laughs> what did I say? Talks, yeah. TM. You gotta I, trademark that. That's really Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure what that even means. Maybe a new kind of socks, uh, maybe a derivation of TikTok. But anyway... <laughs> I ended up doing pretty well with stocks just because I'm stubborn. I and I Google. I have all these stocks that he mentions here, actually, and I've held them for years. I think I got Amazon when it was eighty. Now it's two thousand. Tesla, first time at six. Now it's six hundred. And Google, I bought that at IPO in August twenty fourteen. So yeah, but now I don't advocate stocks. I index fund is much better. We'll talk about why in a moment. Okay, and. Of course, right now, uh, stocks are taking a hit. Um, it goes up and down all the time, especially tech stocks really got kicked in the nuts, I think. So I'm curious, um, and I'm kind of all over the place, but you have all these great stocks that you picked individually because you didn't know that index funds were a good option. And I think uh, your individual funds have probably outperformed over that same period if you would have purchased index funds. Is that fair to say? Yeah, far outperformed. Okay. Now, it seems like everything you touch turns to gold. Do you have any stocks that you purchased that didn't turn out or did you literally you know you're batting like 600 on this stuff or i mean i don't know how many individual stocks you cherry picked over over the early years there um it, this one is difficult because they're a survivorship bias i didn't put much money into a lot of these and they've just blown up so big that their gains far outweigh the losses from the crappy ones but yeah i've picked way more losers than winners i remember her on the dot-com bubble there were stocks like cmgi and i don't remember i actually had a <clears throat> a fund back then called munder net net that i bought for 10 and went to 120 and then it went to zero so many more losers than winners probably on a ratio of two to one but uh the survivorship bias faces the winners who have had long winning runs got it so as devil's advocate over here you did a pretty good job like picking stocks individually and they outperformed. It's an asymmetric bet, right? So you didn't put too much in. So if you lost, no, not a big deal, but the potential upside was huge. You've outperformed index funds over the same period. So why not keep doing it? Yeah, I'd say for one, I got extremely lucky. Uh, do as I say, not as I did. And I said did in the past tense. Uh, yeah, I was just lucky that I was obsessed with tech and bought the right things at the right time. Um, tech is at a massive run. Uh, the other thing I'll say is, as good as these stocks have done now, are they going to be around in 10 years? Eventually, almost every company will die. And you don't know when that's going to happen until it's probably already too late. You think, I remember when the iPhone came out, and that's what made me buy Apple stock. And here's another era. I sold the Apple stock, which is probably the most spectacular stock story of the past decade or two. But anyway, I remember when that thing came out there, smart people like Steve Ballmer, the CEO of Microsoft, saying, oh, this isn't going to go anywhere. This is junk. And uh, people are like, oh, no, BlackBerry. And now, what's the Microsoft phone doing? I don't think there is one. What is, how is Nokia doing? I think Microsoft bought them. And I don't think 
Snokia around, they might be, but if they're a shadow of their former selves, and so is BlackBerry. So you never know when your empire is going to be disrupted. And, 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 and the other thing I'll say that probably the biggest negative, unless you really enjoy reading news, is that if you ho- own individual stocks, and especially if they grow and become big, they kind of take over your portfolio. There was a time where Tesla was almost a third of my portfolio, not too long ago, six months ago. And when it does that, you have a tendency to read a shit ton about that because you, one third of your net worth is tied up in this stock. So I kind of enjoy it. So it's different for me, but I don't think most people do. And I enjoy it from the tech side. The investment side just happens to be the happy side effect. But yeah, if you own stocks, you're going to have to spend mental bandwidth and a lot of it keeping up with them. Where if you own an index fund, you can just buy it and you don't give a shit because there's nothing to really pay attention to. Yep. And that'll come into play for one of the future questions um, down the line here. So basically, I think, you know, for me, index fund investing makes more sense. I never had any um, individual stock investing experience, nor success, and uh, very low interest to me. Uh, News doesn't interest me. I would hate to have to keep up, especially like in the position that you're in with uh, Tesla. Let's say you didn't enjoy following following along the tech side of it. You potentially are consuming all the news, but you can't really take all that much action on it, right? There's very little that you can do to affect the stock price. And because you had such big capital gains, if you sold and we've talked about this a little bit before if you sold then you you owe a lot of taxes so you have this burden just kind of sitting on your shoulder it's a good burden but it's like the more that you rise like the the more you could fall and that that hurts so you're just like reading not you specifically but me i had to like read news and i'm like i have no control over this but it's like just a stressful uh situation yeah and by the time you read any news as well that's far built into the price. There's robots who trade on the millisecond based on these yeah. new stories and stuff. So there's nothing you could do. And when I say I keep up with it, it's for long term. I don't be, I don't make short term decisions. The thing I will say is, I don't know if Ad Tower, the person who submitted this, is he, he happened to mention these these tech stocks. So I would say if you really if his viewpoint is that he wants to own tech stocks, I think the compromise here would be to own something like QQQ, which is the NASDAQ top 100. So you can get a lot of exposure to these stocks and outsized exposure compared to what you would get with VTSAX, but you're still diversified. And the thing I always think about with that is look at Microsoft. I think they're a $2 trillion company or they almost are. Who knew they were going to come back like this? They were left for dead just how Apple was. A, a decade or so ago, more than a decade ago, two decades ago. And now these things have come roaring back. So by owning a sector-specific fund like that, you have more exposure to something you might be interested in, but not the risk of owning a single stock. I keep thinking of more more points here, but we can move on um, in just a sec. So the other thing, like, I mean, these are blue blue chip, like big stocks. And I think if someone wants to make like those big returns and get the asymmetric uh, risk factor, they have to not get these stocks that everyone knows about. These are these are no secret, right? Like people are going in and out on these stocks all the time. 
So I think they have to go in early like you did with each of these. Do you agree with that or is that a bad assumption? Oh, totally. Your 100x growth days are over. You're not going to have, I think, a couple stocks for me. I don't know if Google is anymore, but they were 100 times what I bought them for. You're never going to get that with a big stock like this. You would have to identify some very early growth company, maybe uh, pre-IPO or right around IPO and buy that, which is almost impossible. As I said, I got very lucky. The other thing I'll say to that, Doug, is previously companies would IPO much earlier. So I think Amazon IPO'd with like a $20 billion valuation or something. It might have even been less than that. Now, it's pretty common for companies to get a ton of funding pre-IPO. For example, this was in the news yesterday and today. SpaceX, their newest valuation around is like $127 billion. And they're not anywhere close to an IPO. And they're a little bit different because they're a space company and they'll IPO later. But the chances for that big upside, I think, are smaller just because they're going to IPO at any big hype company is going to IPO at over $100 billion valuation or some. Maybe not that big, but much bigger than they would have a decade or so ago. So your upside is limited by that as well. All right. So I think we were... We, we strongly encourage index fund investing, but consult your own professional. This is uh, hardly entertainment and it's definitely not advice. All right. Next, next set of questions here. Great ones uh, via email from Evan. So I'm going to read this one out. I think it's more directed towards you, Carl. What is your philosophy surrounding home improvements? What are your top priorities and what things are you frugal about or tend not to bother with? And how do you balance ROI with personal enjoyment? Great questions. And I'm, I'm not even going to answer it. So I'll let you run with it. Yeah, this is really good. I'm going to start with his last one first, the ROI versus personal enjoyment. Uh, I enjoy home improvements. I like seeing a, a crappy house or, or an old kitchen or an old bathroom with pink toilets and figuring out how I can make that space beautiful. But if you don't, if you're not like that, and if you don't like to work with your hands, Maybe you shouldn't even consider this because it's just going to be like another job, something miserable that you have to push through versus something that you're excited to wake up in the morning and do. So I'm going to assume that you are excited about this and you are enthusiastic and answer the first question about the philosophy about home improvements. Uh, and that is, and what are the top priorities, I guess, is the extension of this. What things are you frugal with? So I would say there's a couple different ways to think about this, but there are, are certain home improvements which are going to cost you a lot more because they're skilled labor. That might be things like setting tile. Uh, uh, people are going to cringe when I say this, but electricity, because everyone's afraid of that. My dad was an electrician. And plumbing, if you have to hire an electrician or a plumber, you're going to pay a lot. But if you're careful with these things, especially the electrical, you test your line to make sure it's off, you turn your breaker off, there's not much risk to it. Now, be very careful, but if you can do those things, you're just going to save a ton of money. So from a money standpoint, I think those things are worth exploring. Like, And I'm thinking about a kitchen too. I can hang all the kitchen cabinets in a day. But if you call Home Depot to do that, and a friend got a quote like a decade or so ago, and I think they wanted like 5000 bucks to do it. I'm like, hey, Bill, if you can wait a week, I can help you out. We can get this done in a day. It's like, nah, my, uh, my partner really wants it done quickly. So I would say focus on those high bang for the buck things. The opposite of this is something like drywall, which is a pain. There's kind of an art to it. 
a lot of heavy lifting, literally, because you're lifting drywall things up. If you don't have, you're lifting pieces of drywall up if you don't have a drywall lift. And it's usually pretty cheap to find people to do that for. So I err on the side of paying people to do stuff like that. But for the technical or more artistic stuff like tile, which I know would cost a lot, I try to do all of that myself. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else to say here. Yeah, and again, with the drywall thing, I did my basement, and that was the one thing I paid someone to do just because it would have taken me so much time as well. I actually could have done that, but yeah, it just wouldn't have been worth the money. It's better to pay someone to do it. And then the one one thing I'll ask about here is the time that it takes you to do. So how do, how do you factor that in? How, how do you estimate a job? Yeah, that's interesting. And I've been thinking a lot about this lately because we actually just bought another property, which I'll tell you about. And I am going to outsource a lot of this, even some of the stuff I would normally do just because I don't want it to consume my life. So I don't know. I, I read other blogs. I think Paula Pant says she puts a dollar amount on her, like an hour of her time. And I think that's a worthwhile exercise. But the other thing, which is a little bit more subjective, is I, I think about that. Okay, if I found a good tile person, I could pay them, and then I wouldn't have to spend my 10 hours doing this. They would just come in there and get it done. But there's also a lot of time spent trying to find someone and coordinate that. And man, I've hired a lot of crappy people who are pretty diligent. I call references, do the research, but then they they get it done and I look at it. I'm like, I could have done a better job than that. Or in some cases, I've had to do the whole thing over again. So there's the time and the frustration that goes along with that. But I would say try to assign a dollar amount to your work and maybe make it based on what you would have to pay someone. So if it's a skilled person like an electrician or plumber here, you're probably going to pay over a hundred bucks an hour here. Maybe a skilled rough carpenter, maybe 25 to 50 bucks an hour here. But yeah, don't see it. I go back and forth over this, Doug, because I actually enjoy it. So I don't, I haven't taken that part of it too seriously but perhaps i should i don't know what, what do you think doug i don't know i mean we we've talked in on a few other episodes related to i think it goes back to happiness and some stuff so you are you enjoy the work um and it's better to do the work that you enjoy than like hassle with contractors that you have to like chase around to even show up but the other part is sort of the opportunity cost and maybe like how you can distribute your time. So for example, if you're working on say the basement, right? You're working on the basement, you have like a timeline, you have, you know, 30 things to do from the tile to cutting the concrete to the drywall to the paint and the, all the other stuff, right? And there you have to get it done cuz it's just, you know, there's empty space sitting there. And when you have to do that stuff in a certain timeline, so it doesn't drag on for years, then you can't go out and hike, which you also enjoy. So it's like two things you enjoy, what, you know, what a rough life you're leading, right? But you can do fun stuff in different ways and the variety is good versus like, if you have, if you're like, oh, I got to work on this fucking, you know, basement for seven days straight and I got to wake up early uh, in addition to your other obligations and responsibilities and all that 
So that's where I'm like, ah, sometimes the convenience of just like buying something, buying the service, buying the, you know, have someone, someone do a few extra things is really helpful. So I don't have an answer to it other than it's really hard to balance because you're like, okay, I can't do, I could do all this stuff, but I can't do all this stuff in this two weeks. Yeah, Doug, I, I think that's a really great point. You've got me thinking here. So if you're weighing this stuff, I think you should consider what you love to do and what you need to get done in your day. And I think in my case, like spending time with my kids, I shouldn't be doing some crap in the basement when I should be helping my kids with their homework or going for a hike with them. And exercise too. Um, one thought I've had about all this home improvement stuff is especially the last one we did, it consumed my life and probably went months without working out. And exercise is a bit of a workout, but it's not quite the same. So I might have actually shortened my life because I didn't work out. I didn't prioritize that. So if you're giving up stuff that you love to do or need to do, I think you need to reconsider everything. Yeah. Yeah. So it's uh, it's an existential crisis for, yeah. for us all. So one really quick follow-up is uh, Mindy and I were working on something. She's like, I think I'm going to cancel my, my walk with Amy. She's going to go on a walk with a friend. I'm like, no. You are not allowed to do that. Like maybe a year ago, I would have said, yeah, I think that's a good idea. I'm like, no, we should not give up anything we want to do because of this stupid house. You, yeah. You need to go on the hike. Yeah. And quick teaser, we're going to do a whole episode about the new house that you bought. So yeah, we hadn't talked for a little bit. You were sick. We're out of town, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, we were texting back and forth and you're like, we uh, kind of we bought a new house and I'm like, what? And then that, that was it. So I don't know anything about it other than, you know, just general location, but we got a whole episode that's going to come out pretty soon on it. So, all right, moving on next, we have what kind of frameworks do you have around spending? My general sense is that people in the finance community are great savers, but generally struggle with guilt-free spending. So I'll jump in here um, right away because this beautiful national resophonic guitar. Uh, it's a wood body one. If people want to look it up and check it out, it, um, it was fairly expensive and I wasn't planning on buying a guitar that day. And it was, uh, I think I described it. Actually, I'll, I'll tell the little of the story. So we were in there really nice shop. It's a place where you have to like get a, an appointment, but we didn't know that. So I showed up and I was like, ah, maybe we'll just go, have lunch or whatever Elizabeth said, ah, call him up and see. So the guy showed up a few minutes later and basically I just played, you know, 30 different guitars, all amazing, some hundred year old guitars, some brands that, you know, you don't see because they're a boutique and they're very, you know, rare. And um, we talked about this particular guitar and he was like, ah, it's brand new got it listed. I can give you a good deal on it. And basically he came down pretty quick and uh, we left. I was like, ah, I'll call you back maybe um, because we weren't planning on getting a guitar. So we went to lunch and I described the situation as um, like potentially a frivolous purchase, um, excessive, um, other words that uh, basically say that it is completely unnecessary and a splurge. However, it was my birthday that day and somehow I convinced Elizabeth that it was probably okay and then um, went through with it myself. And the thing is when I 
went to go pick it up, I was like, should I do this? This is crazy. Like this is, I, I don't know. I don't know if I should get this guitar. And I was like, I feel like guilty. I actually felt guilty for getting it um, for a few minutes. Um, now for a couple hours, I felt a little guilty and I was like, man, this is bananas, but I love playing it. I've been playing even more and, um, somehow I, I was able to shift and it, we've talked before, like I do, I have a bit more of the spending gene, so I'm okay with it. And I just, um, suppressed it for about 15 years or so as we were saving a bunch of money and just like living a little more frugally, focusing on our priorities so I'm probably the, the oddball and I am I am okay with spending money and occasionally I'll like buy something randomly that we have not budgeted for like this but we have put ourselves in a position where I could buy a guitar that I wasn't planning on and it's okay. So that is kind of a big purchase. How do you feel about Day-to-day stuff, we've had the beer at the airport conversation and you, a couple shows ago you talked about you had, I think, dinner and maybe a steak at the airport bar. Yeah. Which, do those purchases make you feel guilty or how do you feel about those? No, uh, those don't make me feel too guilty. Okay, I mean, I watch it most of the time, like around, like day-to-day is, um, actually, that was a great way you phrased that. So day-to-day, I probably wouldn't get the, uh, you know, the crappy steak dinner and expensive beer and whiskey at the airport, right? That's, so that was a special travel occasion. So the day-to-day though, I'm eating cheap food that I cook here and we shop at Sam's. So it's usually in bulk, a little bit cheaper than the normal grocery store. So day-to-day, it's usually pretty cheap, especially like Elizabeth was out of town this past weekend. So I didn't go anywhere. I just like stuck around here and spent no money basically just because I ate leftovers and whatever, whatever food, <clears throat> excuse me, that I already had. Um, yeah. Good question though. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. No, I'm just thinking that I think, uh, yeah, spending is hard. And I think why I think it's hard is you should, if something is going to truly bring you joy, you should definitely just go and buy it and not even think about it that much as long as it's not going to screw you up financially. But I think sometimes we don't understand what's going to bring us joy. And I guess my biggest biggest example of that is the fancy car I had. I had an Acura NSX. That was always my dream car. And I didn't think it would actually bring me joy, but I wanted to buy it kind of as a $45,000 experiment pretty expensive experiment and I, I i get this thing and yeah sure enough it's kind of fun to drive but it becomes just another thing that you have to maintain that you have to buy insurance for that you have to be careful in parking lots and all that shit but there was a part of it that brought me joy and that was there was a local nsx club where people would get together and talk uh, and talk they would just hang out but the weird thing about that was i noticed the first one i went to all the cars are outside in this person's like front yard and everyone's talking and back and they're not really even talking about cars. So it was the community that the car generated that was the fun part. And I guess the car contributed a little bit of that. It's a little bit of a filter. If you like the car, you probably have some other stuff in common, but I could have participated in the group even without having the car. Hey, I'm just in between cars or I'm 
perpetually looking for one. I didn't need the car to enjoy that. Or as you said, Doug, your recommendation and other recordings we've had is just to rent one for the day and, and see if you can get the bug out of your system that way. And I think my car experience is the case is the same with a lot of people. What they think will bring them joy is different than what actually does it. And I, I think with a lot of these things is it's not the actual item. It's maybe the people surrounding it. Like the big screen TV is great because you can get together with your friends and watch the football game on Sunday. So it's the people that you hang out with. Or maybe you like sports, but it's not so much the sport. It's going with your friends. Like, does anyone actually enjoy baseball? Like, I know you go there. <laughs> Son the hate mail the dog. Yeah. Uh, you go there. I just went to a baseball game in Vegas, and it was kind of fun because you got to have conversation with the family, but I have no idea who won or who any of the people were on the yeah. field or anything like that. So it's hard, but I think there are, are, are there some other criteria. What the hell did I just say? I'm still a little <laughs> bit under the weather here. There are other criteria for buying things. I think if it makes your life more efficient, in my case, uh, the air fryer, I love that thing. I could put chicken nuggets in there if I need a quick meal or like fish and eh, man, it cooks it up. It's all crispy. So uh, super fast and easy. And maybe if it makes your life healthier, like a bicycle or something like that. Uh, <laughs> to counterbalance the air fryer food. Yeah, yeah. No, the air fryer is friendly. Uh, healthier, you're not deep frying stuff. You just stick it in there. I, that's what they say on the infomercial at least. Okay. That's all right. Yeah. Um, and... I was going to say, well, just shout out to, it's called Stay Gold Guitars uh, in uh, Santa Fe. So we'll link up to that. And if you're in Santa Fe and you're into, you know, old vintage guitars, you should check it out. If you're not in interested in old vintage guitars or like higher end boutique stuff, then it's probably a waste of time. But super cool shop. Sean was great. We had a nice time. Oh, one one thing I'll preface too. So I have gone wild with these guitars in the last year or so. But aside from the very first one that I that I purchased, the Gibson LG2, um, the rest I I mean they I, bu I bought them basically at a very good price. So if I sold them, there's a good chance I'd get more than I paid. And if I keep them for a few years, then that just um, sort of not accelerates, but it sort of potentially can grow. So I'm not necessarily viewing it as an investment, but it's like, if I can have a fun time with a guitar for, I mean, let's say I keep it for 15 years and then I sell it for, you know, 40% more than I bought it for, which is really generous by the way. But let's say I'd sold it for the same amount that I bought it for. I'm like, oh, I got my money back and I had a great time with this instrument for 15 years. So Hard to fault that, I think. Yeah, right? absolutely. At I could justify anything, though. <laughs> yeah, at this point in time, you might be uh, outperforming the stock market as well. But I think you hit upon another potential revenue source. You said the word gone wild. Have you considered a Doug gone wild <laughs> DVD? Or I guess DVDs aren't really a thing anymore. Maybe an OnlyFans video series. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Are you trying to get me canceled? I'm not doing anything like that. Am I behind the camera or in front of it? I, like, I'm not sure which... Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was thinking in front, but I'm not. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I don't want to. Oh, oh. So you, you're thinking I can go and find other people named Doug, and then just it's all Doug's gone wild. Yeah, maybe or maybe it's just you. I'm not sure what you would be doing. Would you be thrashing your guitar? Would you be like smashing them like the Who? You'd have to get some shitty guitars for that. <laughs> Doug's gone wild. We'll have to brainstorm on that one. I'm not sure if it's a go for me. Okay, 
One of the more controversial takes I've heard on the podcast is about not contributing to retirement accounts. Do you have any worries that this will be a regret down the line? Okay, so I believe that's directed at me, but Carl, uh, remind us here, how are, are you guys actively contributing to retirement accounts? Can you talk about maybe like the ups and downs over the years if you have uh, stopped or paused or tapered down? Uh, we are still contributing, and the main reason is we're trying to be as efficient as possible with money. Uh, Mindy has a side gig at as a real estate agent, uh, she got her license. She didn't get her license to do that. Actually, she got it so we could save on the 3% transaction costs whenever we would buy or sell a property. Then that money goes to us instead of uh, another agent. But the side effect of this is she has helped other people buy houses. And it's been pretty lucrative lately. Uh, so we we still have. We focus on our 401ks so we don't have to pay that money at the highest tax rate. And we also do uh, Roth. So, okay. yeah, we're all in. Opposite of you, Doug. This is the gift that keeps giving, Doug. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I love it. it. It's good also, I think, from a show perspective. Unfortunately, I, I'm the person receiving the hate. But if you just listen to a show and the hosts just agree all the time, it's not as interesting, I don't think. And the other part is I think by me not contributing – to retirement accounts, it makes the listeners feel smarter too. So it's like win, 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 like everybody's winning. Um, okay, so I don't have any worries. I'm not the kind of person that would worry too much because obviously I could like change my mind and start contributing. The piece that I need to emphasize here is that we did max out our 401ks. We contributed to our Roths we um, did a really good job in our 20s. So there was a nice nest egg in there already. So imagine for a decade or so, both my wife and I contributing quite a bit and uh, that worked out well. At some point, roughly 2014, 2015, we started investing in the post-tax uh, brokerage accounts. And of course, we we didn't pull any money out of the retirement accounts. They're just growing. So if you you know do the math, compound interest, we were basically like, okay, we're we're weighted way too much on the retirement accounts. So we want to get it out into the uh, brokerage post tax accounts, right? Um, now you know we may be a little off balance, and I do have a solo four hundred one k for my company, and occasionally I'll throw a little money in there, but not on a regular basis. It's just like if if I'm if I get the the urge, I'll throw some extra money in there. Um, so overall, we knew the math and some general projections. So we felt comfortable not contributing anymore. Hence me not worrying that I've left too much money on the table. At some point, it's like, and I realize how um, sort of tone deaf it is to say this. At some point, it's like, it'll be a lot of money or it'll be like, a whole lot more money than that. So it's like enough or way more than enough. So I'm not sure what I'm optimizing for exact exactly, um, which is why, you know, I could buy a guitar and I'm like, ah, you know what? I could invest that and it could be worth, you know, whatever tens of thousands of dollars later, or I could have fun with it right now. Like, does it really matter that much? So 
I think we're in a different position than some people. Like if you're in the start of your journey, it would be kind of dumb not to contribute to your retirement accounts, but we're, we're further along. So any thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm going to defend you with one piece of the tax code, which I think it's up for reconsideration in 2025. So this might not be permanently evergreen, but that was redundant, permanently evergreen. I, I hate redundancy. Like when people say ATM machines, like automatic transaction machine, machine, or PIN number, like personal identification number, number, that drives me nuts. But anyway, the way the tax code works is long-term capital gains don't kick in until I think it's like 82 or 83,000. And then you have your standard deduction. So they, if you're married, they really don't kick in until after like 124,000 in gains. So a real simple thing, let's say you invest 124,000 in stock and and it doubles to, you could sell that whole thing and not pay any capital gains. This is a very oversimplification. Sure. But you're going to, if things stay the same, you're going to be probably able to access most of the money and not pay taxes anyway. And you have the benefit of being able to access it earlier without penalty if you need to. And I know you could access the principle of a Roth or that you could access the initial, the 5,000 or whatever you put in there that mm -hmm. year. But now you have access to all of it should you need it without penalty. So there is that advantage. I think investing in a post-tax brokerage account is kind of overrated for that reason in the tax code. I mean, we're all pretty fr frugal, right? So we'll probably be able to not pay capital gains on any of that. And the other thing is you're not going to be subject to RMDs that that money won't be RMDable, if you know what RMD <laughs> is. The government makes you take money out if you want to or not, but that only applies to, I think, the 401k, the pre-tax accounts, maybe. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I'd have to- I think that's right. Yeah, double check that, but- What does it stand for? Required minimum distribution. Yep. So, what is it? Once you hit like 70 or so, you have to start taking a certain percentage out. So, let's say you end up- and I don't know the percentages, by the way. People could look this up. But let's say you have like eight million dollars in your po or your pre-tax like retirement accounts, you may have to start taking like a shitload of money out, and <clears throat> then you have to pay taxes on that. Which I mean, it, we don't have kids, right? So if you have kids, you may want to like manage things a little bit differently. But uh, I'm I'm carefree and uh, just pretty frivolous generally. So yeah, and those taxes that's tax at ordinary income. So yeah. And overall, um, I think the way we've done it gives us quite a bit of flexibility, which I value quite a, I, I value the flexibility over like maximizing the returns. And there's some blend, right? And it's different for everyone. Everyone's trying to guess. Like I may, have, maybe if I would have put more into those retirement accounts, I'd have quite a bit more money now, but I wouldn't be doing anything different with it. It's just, you know, Scrooge McDuck swimming around and money and yeah, it's not super helpful. Did you say Scrooge McDuck or Scrooge McDug? <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, a small t-shirt. One final thing I'll say about this topic is that we're not advisors, but me personally, I like having money in all three things and all three of them are the post-tax one which you get the shit for, the Roth, which you've already paid the taxes, and the, the 401k. You never know what tax code is going to change. And I like being able to pivot and draw money from whichever of those is appropriate at the time in life. Maybe it'll make more sense to take money from one over the other at 
59 versus 72 on the RMD, and that's a whole other conversation, so we won't go into that, but yeah, I like having my eggs in those three baskets. Yep, and that's exactly what we have, too. So, I just presented in a abrasive way, so it pisses people off, I guess, but um, that's, that's how you get clicks on YouTube. So, okay, coming up from Mark, we got a few more here. We'll try to speed through, so... Uh, Carl mentioned he purchased a rowing machine. I've been con- I've been considering purchasing one as well. So you want to get an update on that rowing machine and they want to know about the brand and what your workout looks like with the rowing machine. And yeah, go on. Yeah, so this was in the middle of COVID. The gym was closed. I still wanted to work out. So I bought this thing and I did not research the brand before I came on, but we will put it in the show notes. I know I've already replied to Mark with it, but... It was a little bit difficult because the number one rowing machine, like the one that all the gyms have, is a Concept 2. In the middle of COVID, that thing was backordered. You could buy a reservation for it just to get it sooner from other people for like 200 bucks. So people were paying that much (laughs) just to get the opportunity to spend like 1,000 or 2,000, whatever these things cost, to buy it. I did not want to spend that much, so I started hitting up YouTube and reviews, and it turns out there's not a whole lot of reviews on these things. So I hit up Amazon and just got a cheap one. I went with a magnetic one. I think it was about 200 bucks and I wasn't expecting a whole lot, but I've been pleasantly surprised by it. I like a rowing workout and it's held up great. No issues whatsoever. Uh, It's not quite as good as the Concept 2 one at the gym, but for 200 bucks, it was well worth it. I get a great workout. I usually use it to warm up before a weight exercise or sometimes I'll quake it. Uh, if I'm bored with weights or don't want to do that, I'll really crank up the resistance on that and do that in place of like the pull part of a weight exercise. Uh, we'll put a link to the one I purchased in the show notes. Cool. And then any other descriptions on the workout, especially with the rowing machine? Yeah, I don't think so. Um, well, I will say I try to go for longer workouts on that, maybe lesser resistance than a longer one. There's certain YouTube channels I like to watch, so it's pretty nice being able to sit on the rowing machine and watch a YouTube video at the same time, get caught up on that. Nice. All right. This one is directed at me. Uh, Carl, why don't, you, why don't you read it to me? Yeah, Doug, you seem to be emphatically against owning real rental real estate. Have you had a bad experience with it in the past, or do you just know you hate being a landlord? Just to clarify, I do not own rentals either, but I've considered it, and I'm on the fence about it. I'd also like Carl's thoughts on rental real estate if he's willing to share. I did have a bad experience, and I know that I won't like it also. So number one, I bought my first house in 2005 which was a very bad time to buy a house. And I wanted to have it as a rental uh, property in the future. Uh, That's what my parents did. So their first house, they rented it out and then they had a a really good experience with it. I mean, if you bought, if you bought a house, when they bought a house, like it worked out really well, especially in the area that they were in. So I thought I could do that with my first home too. Of course, I didn't run any math on it. I didn't have any idea. I just thought this is an up and coming area. If I keep this for a long time, um, I will rent it out and it'll be great. So fast forward a few years, um, the, the house was upside down. 
uh, right after the financial crisis. And then I got married, moved out, and I was like, okay, I'm going to rent it out. And then I proceeded to lose about $200 to $300 each month just on the rent versus the mortgage that I was paying, plus any expenses for repairs and the normal maintenance that you run into with a rental property. So it didn't work out that that well. And eventually, I let it go into foreclosure strategically because I was like, I, I don't want to deal with this and I can't, um, I can't get a mortgage. Uh, basically, all the options look pretty bad. I, I won't go through everything and enumerate it all, but the options look bad. The mortgage company wasn't going to work with me. I made a bad decision as a, you know, 20, whatever, four-year-old, 25-year-old, and then I let it go into foreclosure. The other part is I don't like everyone brace themselves. And I, I don't think I'm that abrasive in person, but maybe I play it up for the show a little bit. But if you work in real estate, cover your ears. I don't like anyone that works in the real estate industry. Uh, the mortgage brokers, the title people, even the uh, notaries, right? And then the real estate agents are really just, no, no offense to Mindy. They're just um, used car salesmen that are selling homes instead. I'm like, I've just dealt with so many people that were just lying to my face in every step of that process, by the way, not the notary. Those are honest people, but the real estate agents definitely don't want to trust them. They'll tell you anything, right? They're just full of crap. Do you agree? I, I do agree. Did you see? <laughs> yeah. And Mindy and I actually have this conversation all the time. Yeah. It's, it is so, it's frustrating. And then the other part, and then I'll take it down a notch, is we have purchased and sold a few homes in the past. And the incompetence of the real estate agents blows my fucking mind. So quick couple examples. Usually it comes down to the paperwork, which is what they're supposed to be good at, because I don't know what paperwork to, to deal with, right? But it's paperwork and spreadsheets. So we've gotten like multiple offers and counter offers where just the math is wrong on the sheet. It's like really important. It's a contract, right? Like you're trying to do the transaction and uh, they just messed up. I'm good at spreadsheets and my, my wife's even better and like numbers and all that stuff. So when we're looking, we're like, well, this number's wrong and that's wrong. And then it, it uh, propagated out here. So now these numbers are wrong and somehow they, they're like, oh yeah, you're right. That is a mistake. So I don't like, I don't like the industry overall. Now that aside, I mean, if I did like um, the people, I could deal with it. The thing that I have realized is the work of being like a, a property owner. Like I, I don't want to do any of that stuff. And my returns potentially are going to be considerably lower if I just invest in index funds. And I realize that. However, it does buy me extra time. I don't have to look at houses. I know I could have a property management company manage all the property and it could be really hands off. But I'm foregoing all of that in the interest of like flexibility and time. And it's, it's working out. Okay. 
Yeah, VTSAX is pretty easy. It doesn't call you up with complaining about the color of the paint or the toilet's not flushing fast enough or whatever million other things a potential renter could call you about. Right. Well, and that said, I know a lot of people that have done really well in real estate and they love looking at houses and they like talking to real estate agents and they like mortgage brokers and the whole thing. And if you find yourself in that camp, go for it. I'm not here to judge anyone else. I'm just telling you my own my own thoughts and I can tell you it's not for me. Yeah, there's a there's a big problem with the way real estate agents work and it what it all comes down to is incentives. And it all comes down to one thing and that is that the real estate agent is paid when the transaction completes. So they're not compensated if they get you the highest price for the house. I mean a little tiny bit, but they're more incentivized to close the house at a faster timeline so you don't fire them and quit them. On, on the buyer half of it, they're incentivized when you buy a house, so they're not incentivized for you to get the best deal on the house. They just want to close the deal. So if you think about it on the selling part of it, 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 there's been studies done on this. When agents sell their house, they typically sell for a higher price than the people, than their clients. And it's because uh, I've been pressured f- by agents many times before, like you need to really sell the price. And I've always resisted. And We've always gotten what we've wanted. Like, hey, I've done the research. Here's the 10 comps I've looked at. I think this is a good price. Ah, oh, you might want to do it lower. <laughs> and on the buyer side, I think we overpaid for one house. Did the agent ever bring that up? I'm like, nope. But then when we, when we went to sell the short time later, we realized, oh, man, we weren't familiar with this area. We made this mistake. And I don't think I received good advice. With that said, not all agents are like this. And uh you do want to find one that's in your best interest. If you're in real estate, try to find someone who's going to represent you and truly gives a shit about you and not just someone, especially some of these big ones, you don't even end up talking to them. They just throw you off to their assistant and that's the end of it. So they're not all bad. They're just, but the ones that are bad are incentivized incorrectly and keep that in mind. Yeah. Um, we, we do have to wrap it up here. We, we just keep going. But I was going to say, future story, we'll put this on our, um, on our, on our board here. Um, I sold the house in Bozeman. And that was a cool experience. There were some ups and downs, a little contention, as you can imagine. But that's a good story that we could talk about sometime. And then the other part is the incentives and uh, real estate and, and the study that you're talking about, one of the opening stories in Freakonomics. So that that's where it was ref or they talk about it at least in the early part of the book. So Yeah. And I know they did that on their podcast as well. We'll put a okay. link to that in the show notes. All right, cool. So um last question here. This one's for you, Carl. You've talked about syndication. So can you dive a little deeper? Are you loaning money? Is it paid back? With interest after a certain time, do you get uh, net income? H- how does it work? And have it been, has it been worthwhile versus VTSAX? So the syndications we've done are ones, are value add ones. And that is when a big conglomerate of people buy a property, the syndicator fixes up the property. They usually go apartment by apartment. They raise the rents and then they sell it usually within like two to five years, sometimes slower, sometimes faster, depending on market conditions. Uh, every syndication I've had, and I didn't think one was going to do this, but everyone I've had has beaten their projected numbers. 
and none of them have beaten VTSAX. Uh, it's crazy. <laughs> and I kind of did this back at, I started doing these in 2016. I'm like, oh, it'll be a hedge. Like, I don't know how the stock market's been on a run and none of them worked out. And the funny thing is, you might think, well, how are they doing right now? Like the stock market's crashing. Almost all of them sold last year. So now is the time I really want where it would be beneficial to be in one. And now I'm out of all of them except for one. There's one straggler. Oh, no, there's two actually. So I do still have two. Uh, but real quick, how these things work is they pay a quarterly dividend. So you get money every three months if they're doing all right. Some of them have not done that. They went through a rough patch but made it up at the end when real estate went crazy. And then they pay you a bunch of upside at the end. I would proceed very, very cautiously with these. We actually don't do them anymore except for people that we personally know and have extreme confidence in their abilities. Uh, those are smaller people who don't have the overhead either. But the other thing about these is we did them in our solo 401k. So there's no tax hit for us because that's an tax sheltered thing. If you were doing this with after tax money, you might be better off at something like VTSAX because you got to pay money and deal with K1s and all the tax implications of these things. Depreciation. Uh, so yeah, I would say proceed carefully. It makes your taxes more complicated, might make you may pay more in taxes and maybe not so much given the events of the past month where maybe we're in a recession now, but everything seemed pretty inflated. Over time, I saw these numbers go down, down, down. Like they would say, we think we can double your money in, in like three years. And now it's like, well, it might be 150% return in four years or something like that. So I've seen the deals get worse. And I think that's because there's more people fighting over these scraps. So yeah, be, be very careful. The other thing I'll say about these is everyone throws out their numbers and that's just what they think they'll do. What they'll actually do is never, never what's on that piece of paper. And like I said, we got lucky with a couple that did not do well, but then they got lucky at the end because they sold the thing for a bigger amount they could, but they did horrible. Like one of them stopped paying for two years and we got fortunate at the end when real estate went nuts. Uh, we got our money back then, but I would say my number one tip for these is you can analyze the numbers all day, but the subjective part of it is more important. Like, do you know these people? Have you had a thorough conversation? Are you confident they know what they're doing? Are they doing this in their own backyard? We had one which did not do well, and it was because I think they went to a, a different town that they were completely unfamiliar with, and they bought in a pretty bad area from talking to the locals, and they didn't know it. So, But in the end, that one worked out too because they got the COVID upside, I guess. Hmm. But tread carefully. If you're, I would say, always err on the side of ETSAX. Cool. All right. Well, that's it for today. Um, Please send in more questions. We are trying to do, you know, more mailbags. We really enjoy um, getting these in. So please send them our way. And we have uh, a couple fun episodes coming up. I'm trying to remember, of course, we're going to talk about you buying a new house, you and Mindy getting a new place. Do you, do you remember any other uh, fun ones? Uh, that one will be good. And I want to say, Mark, you had asked me about my thoughts on rentals. I'll go over that more when they when we do that episode, because I do have a lot of thoughts on that. Yeah. What else do we have? I have no idea. I've been out of it. Doug. My mind is, <laughs> my mind is kind of foggy from this non COVID virus. Very good. Okay. Well, just make sure you're subscribed and you'll see the new episodes coming out and we'll uh, catch y'all in the next episode. 
Thanks for listening to the show. That was the Mile High Five podcast, and I'm Doug Cunnington, the Balder host, and Carl Jensen is the cool, sexy one. If you dig the show, please do three things for us. Number one, tell a friend, a family member, an enemy about the show. We really don't care who you tell. Maybe forward them a specific show that you know that they will like. It's the single most helpful thing that you can do to spread the word. It's like giving us a virtual high five. And uh, actually, we don't give high fives in, in person. So the virtual kind is pretty good. And more importantly, your friend or family member or even your enemy will appreciate the fact that you were thinking of them. Number two, make sure you're following or subscribed on your podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, YouTube, whatever you're using. And that way you won't miss a show. And number three, please leave us a rating and review. We read them on the show occasionally, and you might hear yours out there on an upcoming episode. Quick disclaimer, this show is not financial or legal advice. I'd actually be surprised if it sounded like it. It's really just for entertainment, and that's at least what we're hoping for. But seriously, get advice from professionals. Carl and I are just two guys with microphones that sit in my basement and talk. So we'll catch y'all next week. We'll just roll with this bad question instead. So you just got back from out of town, right? Where were you? What were you up to? I did. I was in Las Vegas. Uh, my older sister graduated from college at the ripe old age of 46. When I was done with high school, I went straight to college. She decided to follow the Grateful Dead. That was shortly before Jerry Garcia's demise. So that was still a thing. And uh yeah, good for her. Tenacious. A uh, couple decades later, um, two and a half decades later, she finally got it. So yeah, I, w- I was in Vegas, which was kind of, you know, Doug, I don't, how do you feel about Vegas? It's fine. I've only been one time, like a long, like 20 years ago. So um, I think there's more that I could potentially like check out these days. Yeah. I, I think a lot of the outdoor stuff and some of the museums and stuff is cool, but the strip, the whole thing that people go there for, I fucking hate going there. I was there. and So I'll back up a second. I decided to walk from my mom's house down to the strip and she lives in Henderson. So that was a 20 mile round trip. I wanted to beat my step record for the day and I did. I got 50,000. But anyway, I got to the strip like at 1030 and there's like drunk people screaming and yelling that looked like there were I, I don't know, some people in pretty bad shape, but it's like, I don't even like being there. I can't imagine like taking my kids or something like that down there. Just, yeah. I don't know. It, it's not my scene. So, you, and you walked like 23 miles that day, is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. 23 miles. It was 10 miles back and forth. And then I had to do some additional ones to get up to my 50,000. Wow. 50, how, how did you feel the next day? Were you pretty sore or anything? No, you know what? I felt completely fine. It, I was kind of stupid for doing it because I've had this post-nasal infection going on, not COVID, but I did it in the middle of that and, and that hit me worse. My legs were fine and I got to see the the Tupac Memorial. Are you a Tupac fan, Doug? Not as much as I used to be. Okay. I, I will say if you ever go to Vegas and want to see that, it's quite disappointing. I, I was looking at Google Maps. I'm like, ah, oh, the Tupac Shakur Memorial. I'm like, ah, oh, that's interesting. So I went and Checked it out, and basically what it was was a bunch of stickers and graffiti that someone put on a light post. I, I don't know if Tupac deserved more, but <laughs> don't go yeah. out of your way to see it. Yeah, I feel like we could put together a, a memorial like that pretty quick. I have a 
a lot of stickers just laying around. So and while you were out of town, we went to Santa Fe. It was my birthday weekend then. Yeah. So we went to Santa Fe and to a reservoir like way out of town. Kind of, it's kind of like Breaking Bad. That's how I've described it. Where they drop off bodies. It was just like gravel roads, cacti, and like nothing. Big skies, and it was amazing. Yeah. So pretty cool. And I understand you purchased yet another guitar on your trip. How did that come about? It was, yeah, so it's sitting right in front of me here. It is a National Resophonic. It's a resonator guitar. So a lot of people play slide guitar with it. There's like a metal hubcap looking thing on the front there. And there's a guitar shop in that town that focuses and specializes in vintage instruments and they restore them and they uh, you know fix up these guitars that are basically falling apart they also have some higher end new guitars which that's a brand new guitar so i didn't realize that it's cool to get the vintage stuff but like i picked it up and i didn't have anything like it in my uh, now collection of guitars so i thought well this is pretty awesome it felt great looked amazing and then the uh the deal was pretty good so i like they they list for fairly expensive and it was dramatically cheaper than that so i'm not i think he just needed to move it and like it's more expensive so not many people are going in looking at you know the boutique guitars and stuff like that so are you familiar with the slide guitar and resonators and all that i know what uh you're talking about uh a slide guitar? That's not the thing you put on your finger, right? That's... It is, yeah. There's okay. actually, there's yeah. a slide oh, right yeah. there. Yeah. I thought that was a bong. It does look like a bong. It's, uh, for the people that, I mean, no one can see it because it's, it's on the, on not visible in the camera view, but it's a blown glass uh, slide. So it looks like a, um, like a pipe or a bowl or whatever that you can smoke, um, various things in but that one you play guitar with <laughs> okay perhaps a dildo as well my mind went there as well i don't don't know why yeah that it actually looks like a you know i would say average to small size dildo yeah <laughs> that makes me feel a little bit better uh one request you have all these fancy guitars are you familiar with van halen's eruption or uh, eddie van halen the probably am, most yeah. famous guitar solo of all time i know that's not meant to be played acoustically but It'd be pretty awesome if you could learn that and play it. If, if you could just get that done by like our next recording next week, I'd, I'd like that. Yeah. The funny thing, and I, I told you before, um, it's just, you know, practicing the same thing over and over again with a metronome. And um, not that I think that I can do that, but I've been practicing like super basic stuff just over and over again. I'm getting faster and better at learning new things uh, as time goes on. But yeah, I think that's not on my radar. I'm... I am focusing on acoustic stuff, so I don't even have an electric guitar. I'll bet if we went on YouTube, though, there would be other people playing acoustic versions of that song. <laughs> yeah. And I know they you They are do crazy. It. Yeah. Okay. Good sound check. Good sound check. <laughs> 